Hey, welcome to Off Air. It's your weekly news and pop culture podcast. Each week, Nick Stewart and myself, Tim Rubin, pull apart the top three stories of the week and give you a little look behind the media curtain. Oh, and as a side note, Nick doesn't know any of the stories. Every week, I surprise him. Uh, Plus, we've got our Nick picks at the end. Those are our recommendations. If you like hanging out with us, we have a Facebook group. It's called Off Air Podcast Community. We would love to see you in there. We discuss all of our topics every week. Now this week, coming up, we are going to be doing the new Olympic sports that I think mainly have old white guys riled up, a study in Australian masculinity that's come out, and the Australian anthem sung in an Indigenous language has the sporting world split. Let's get into it. Welcome to Off Air. What is our mandate? Tim Rubin. It's super creepy to reanimate somebody's dead father for their birthday. Nick Stewart. I really leaned into trying to get radicalised by ISIS. You're listening to Off Air. I believe it's this. Nick, hello. I'm really excited to be talking to you this week because where are you? What are you doing with yourself? I'm sitting on a farm in the middle of somewhere between Brisbane and Toowoomba and the Gold Coast. I think if you triangulated it, I'm, a, I'm around there. For some stupid reason, my mate uh, and I were having a chat and I said, oh, I've got to take some time off. And, and I'd love to come up to the farm. And he goes, actually, we do have a little bit of work for you to do there. Uh, so I have been digging, I'm going to say about 250 meters of trench and laying pipe in it to set up a giant irrigation system i'm sweaty there's blit there is blisters in places i didn't even know i could get blisters and i had chafed so bad on the first day that i could barely peel my underwear off that fused into my inner thigh <laughs> i can see you as well because we connect on video now and uh you've just taken off your akubra and you're in some type of hard yakka uh, what what oh, brand it, is mate. what brand is this shirt that you're wearing? This is like a real oh, Bisley. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, full country except for the socks. I'm gonna I, obviously a very visual medium podcast, but I'll try to give you a look at my socks quickly. Oh, he's still rocking some type of like business fancy red fluoro socks. The <laughs> <laughs> red LeBron James basketball oh, uh, socks. And uh, my boots got a bit of crap when I came up as well because there's quite a few other guys working up here and uh, they weren't impressed with how clean they were. <laughs> Do you want to know something about boots? I uh, I was going to I was going to be broadcasting one year from the Mount Isa Rodeo, and mm. um, everybody that I spoke to was like, "You got to get some boots, mate. You got to get some boots before you head to the rodeo." Because I and I didn't want to stand out and look like a total kind of city slicker idiot. Um, yeah, yeah. But I also didn't want to spend like real boots, like 300 bucks or something. Like they really expensive. Oh, proper cowboy boots. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and you will stand out. That's the thing because they can smell, they can smell the lack of authenticity. <laughs> you're going to hate this. I was like, I'm not going to spend that $200 or whatever it is. Kmart had a section in the shoe section. They had these like <laughs> fake vinyl leather faux uh, oh, pull on no. boots, bought them, sc- <laughs> <laughs> scuffed some sand and dirt into them. I got so many compliments on like, oh, that's a nice color boot, mate. <laughs> People loved it. I thought we did. I thought we did Nick picks at the end of this podcast. You're With, already <laughs> telling the us Kmart how to get a fake uh, horse riding boot. Great, great. Tim's quality. country hacks. <laughs> I still wear them. I still wear them all the time. They look great with jeans. I get compliments on them all the time. I think they were twelve dollars. Oh, good. 
Really um, show your carbs off. How was- <laughs> Story number one. The International Olympic Committee has made an announcement this week that has sporting fans very split. Uh, four sports have been added to the official sport list for Paris 2024, and they're not what some people expected. So in Paris, we're going to be seeing Olympic breakdancing, sport climbing, skateboarding, and surfing. Uh, now, climbing, skateboarding, and surfing have actually been added for a trial run for Tokyo 2021, but because of COVID, they've already been re-signed. So they were on the trial hmm. period, but they've been renewed. Um, uh, but breakdancing is now going to be making its Olympic debut in four years. Uh, Nick, people are getting very, very worked up about this, and there seems to be a very common thread about the type of people that are getting worked up about it, and I'm not going to label them just yet. Are you excited to be watching breakdancing in the Olympics? I Well, look, I love the Olympics. I think we all love it when the Olympics are on because for me, I'm a sport nut. So you could yeah. always turn it on and just watch a bunch of random crap like skeet shooting and different things for the Winter Olympics. And <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, yeah, it is ridiculous that breakdancing is part of the... I think it should be stripped back. I think it should only be sports that were allowed... In at in ancient Athenian times, <laughs> so only wrestling, boxing, only the key things, but also maybe just sports that are measurable as well. But what do you uh, mean? That means that means no basketball. That means no no soccer. No basketball. Well, yeah, but that I wasn't think in that the there's... Athenian times. I mean, the Olympics has grown. There are ninety yeah. percent of the sports that exist in the Olympics now didn't exist at the Olympics when they first were invented. When do esports come into it though? Because they're there, aren't they? I think esports were getting a trial run in Tokyo, or, or no. might be next year. No, no, no. So I think not in at the Olympics. Because the Olympics should just be. I, I'm okay with basketball not being in the Olympics. I mean, basketball for a start. One of the good arguments I have heard is it should only be sports where the Olympics is the peak thing. So swimming at the Olympics is the peak of the yeah. competition. Yeah. Whereas. Okay. Football, it's not. Basketball, it's not. Wrestling, it is. Uh, you know what I mean? So keep it to the sports that need the Olympics almost. Yeah, but also, I it's, don't know. also it's, a, it's actually an important proving ground. So um, a lot of people don't realize this, and you kind of started to open this up about um, the Olympics being the peak thing. So mm. in certain sports uh, like boxing, in boxing, you can't have turned pro and yeah. then represent your country in the Olympics. So Floyd Mayweather can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'll go to the Olympics. Or Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, yeah. uh, I think, did go to the Olympics, but only when he was 17 before he yeah. turned pro. And he won so, a gold medal. And so th- this is why it actually uh, is a really important role in certain sports. But it's actually not the best athletes in the world competing anymore and the same would be said for um for things like uh basketball because you don't see lebron james isn't on the american team so well he goes occasionally that has changed so basketball is different and i know soc but soccer is i think your best under 23 side from memory uh, no it's some weird thing but also like there are just a lot of athletes who i who i don't think want to do it I, there are yeah. athletes I think they all want to do it once. We all yeah. want to go to the Olympics. I mean, it's just a it's it's a sex fest for twelve days. 
of the fittest humans on the planet. Just the, the freakishly the, the com- best looking, genetically yeah. modified All human beings. together. Yeah. That's what they're doing there, man. We've seen it. The, the amount of condoms they go through at the Olympics, uh, it's insane rates. And apparently all the food in the Olympic village, I knew a guy that went there for kayaking and he just said his biggest goal was to make the Olympics, not to do well at the Olympics, but just so he could enjoy himself in the <laughs> Olympic village. Like opening, closing ceremony. He said he ate about three Magnums a day because there was free Magnums in there. Magnums <laughs> so, aren't even expensive. You can get I know, but pack. hey, look, kayaking isn't setting the world on fire with their um, dramatic paychecks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure you'd be pro this though, wouldn't you? I am pro this. You would be pro weird sports because you like rock climbing as well. I like rock climbing as well. But I think that uh, like anything, it's evolve or die. And Mm. the Olympics need to continue to grow. They they need people to watch them and to sponsor them in order for them to uh, remain relevant. And, you know, there are other sports like like breakdancing that are growing and growing, especially in like urban cultures. And there is... What, in 1987? No. Is breakdancing still cool? I thought the kids were crumping and yeeting these days. There's a thing called uh, the World B-Boy Championships, which is essentially the Olympics of breakdancing. There's an incredible documentary about it. And it, it's amazing. But the other thing that you've got to remember is we're looking at this and we're speaking about this from a Western perspective. And breakdancing is huge across Asian cultures. Um, it's huge in Korea, China, Japan. Um, and so this is a way of continuing to grow the Olympics and, and continuing to grow its relevance. I've got some of the some of the people who are angry about it. So here I've got uh, American sports reporter David Woods wrote on Twitter, so no to cross country and yes to breakdancing. International Olympic Committee is an utter embarrassment to sport. Um, prof- <laughs> professor. I think that's fair. I would rather see cross country. I'd like to see a mixture of cross country that, that eventually just evolves into the Hunger Games at the Olympics. <laughs> just let these super fit athletes out, tell them they've got to run somewhere and then set the shooters up somewhere else. And they've just got to intercept them along the way. Why would you say? Um, can I, well, this, uh, Canadian professor Gad Sad wrote on Twitter, next there's going to be a new sport at the 2028 Olympic. It's a triathlon, breakdancing, followed by fishing, and then long jump spitting. There used to be a time where the 100-meter sprint was the archetype of an Olympic athlete. Now everyone is an Olympic athlete. It, it is ironic because he is super Canadian. Uh, Gad Sad, and they're not good at anything. So you'd hope he would just be throwing as many events in as possible to try to actually get forward. So what do you have against this? Because I'm I'm for it. I think it's going to have it. It's going to increase the number of countries and the number of uh, demographics who are going to be interested in the Olympics, and it's going to mean that the Olympics is going to live for longer. So why are you? Why are you opposed to the idea of breakdancing being in the in the Olympics? It's a good question because I think you're right. It's just an emotional response at first. But the other thing is, is it just me or has the Olympics gone downhill a little bit in the past few? Like part of me does think that Sydney well, was this a bit year, of a peak. And now... It- it's well, gone obviously down. this year it didn't happen, <laughs> it didn't but happen. in the, in the, in the four, the, the previous ones... I've really tuned out recently. Other than the swimming, I don't even watch it that much because it doesn't, I mean, 
we're always drawn to enigmatic characters and that there, there isn't a whole heap of enigmatic characters uh, in, in those sports at the moment. Like who are the big swimmers these days or who, are, who is the big sprinters? I think when you had someone like Usain Bolt who dominated the track and drew people to it, that really got us going. I don't have anything against it. Look, if they want to dance in the Olympics, if they want, I mean, they already have, the one thing I would say is, can they start culling some sports as well? Like, can it be a one-for-one deal? Well, it because actually, they already have, it actually what's is. the feather one? You know, uh, the one where the, they just dance around and do the little rhythmic gymnastics. Yeah, well, get will, rid of that. If you want to put breakdancing in, get rid of that because there's enough crossover for those athletes to be involved in. It actually life. is. Well, they actually do cull sports. And um, what they've decided to do to make the time is they've actually culled certain weight classes in boxing and weightlifting because they take up no. so many. Yeah, and because like these sports aren't – I mean – Olympic boxing isn't as important as professional boxing. So exactly the point that you were making, it's a lesser form of the sport, whereas this will be the pinnacle of breakdancing. Should cheerleading be an Olympic sport? Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. Have you seen that? Yeah, but should it? Where where, where do you stand though? Yeah, it should. Yeah. Have you seen that Netflix documentary Cheer or whatever it was called? Those guys are fucking Everything can't be a sport though. Should CrossFit be in the Olympics? Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. I mean, this is the thing. And this is what I've noticed with all of these arguments against it. And somebody actually wrote on on our Facebook group. You can't have everything in. (laughs) Somebody wrote bloke called Stephen, he wrote, tango and plate balancing next. And I wrote, yeah. well, if enough people compete in them and they have enough of a following and they do an application, then why not? And Stephen wrote, great. And shoplifting? Question mark. A good question. It's a good question, Stephen. And this I'm is, on your side, mate. This is what so many crotchety old men, and you are quickly becoming this, no. Nick, <laughs> seem to do, is they conflate what is happening with insane things, and they say, well, is that going to be what's gonna, what will happen okay. next? And the answer no, is no. I don't. Is it, though, should... Okay, two ones for you, just quickly. Okay. Should uh, esports be in the Olympics? Well, I don't think that it's a sport. I think that it's a game because um, there's not an athleticism element to it. So I would say oh, no to that. Because, you, okay. No, because once, once you allow esports, um, then you would be doing chess and checkers and, and any other game where it's not actually a physical challenge. What was your second one? Second one is should competitive eating then be in the Olympics? Yeah, why not? Ah, I've got you. You don't want it in there, though, do you? No, I'd be happy to watch it. If it gets a following. All right, I think they should update. Story number two. An Australian-wide study has come out this week. You probably haven't seen this. This was quite small. An Australia-wide study came out this week into how people perceive masculinity. And uh, there are a few different interesting principles that seem to be overriding across the vast majority of participants' responses. They were, um, one, that traditional gender stereotypes are limiting and harmful for boys and men. Um, There is pressure on men to live up to traditional masculine stereotypes and that masculine expectations are outdated. uh, Oh, sorry. Or that masculine expectations or outdated ideas of masculinity prevent men from living full lives. Now, 
Nick, obviously you and I didn't take part in the survey, but for once there is a news story that these two straight white middle-class dudes are actually experts on, and so I'm not going to let it pass, <laughs> and I've worked it into the podcast. So I want to talk about masculinity and, and gender stereotypes. Nick, do you think personally that uh, masculine stereotypes are harmful to men? I think it's a that's a really complex question, and there's a lot of different angles to it because I think it's also really interesting. I do think there's been only in the past maybe decade a real shift in how we perceive masculinity uh, for the better, in my opinion, especially when it comes to awareness around mental health. Because I think we all know what stereotypically we perceived masculinity as uh, when we were growing up, when we were kids and when our parents were kids. And it was almost that real, I mean, I don't know why, but sh- like Sean Connery, James Bond, or that yeah, a cowboy, you know, closed off emotionally, just goes to work and works hard and sacrifices for their family. Or it could be the bloke that gets on the piss after the footy on a Friday, that type of thing. And I, and I do think that there's been a seismic shift in the way we now perceive it because I think people are a lot more open uh, emotionally. And, and, and I think that um, – I think it's interesting. It's just hard. Do you think that uh, mascul- the, the way you perceive masculinity has changed from when you were a child? Yes. I think that uh, the world has definitely changed. But I'm also very aware that I grew up in a very supportive environment. And for me personally, I never found gender stereotypes to be limiting um, in what I was able to do. So the the last point from the study was that the majority of people uh, agreed um, that masculine expectations uh, prevent men from living full lives. And I think that that's a very serious one because the first two are kind of hypothetical, whereas this one is reflective of the fact that thousands of men who were surveyed uh, feel that they might have lived a different life if they didn't have those pressures from society weighing down on them. And that's something yeah. that I wanted to talk to you about because it's something that for me personally, I can't, I, I don't feel that. Um, my My parents were super progressive and super supportive and you know like I was into like drama and acting and I went to drama school after after high school and they were cool with that and that was so- you've always been challenging the stereotypes of masculinity yeah but also I mean I also have to just acknowledge that I exist in you know I you and I are both slightly different people in the world a bit of a bubble yeah, yeah, yeah. and well and we're, we're both uh I mean I like I have to acknowledge that I'm a very uh, confident person. And so mm. for me, uh, these expectations, like I feel very confident in my masculinity. Um, mm. and, and for me, like my masculinity is a total mishmash. Like I went to drama school and at drama school, like we had to do like jazz ballet classes and all of these things. But then at the same time, I love doing boxing classes and I love playing rugby and I love all these different things. And so for me, my masculinity is just this total mishmash. And I'm so comfortable with that. Hmm. But it, but sa- I think it's big. You like to put on hats as well. Like if we're talking about ourselves, I think sometimes you like to lean into the real, the blokey. You, you like to go to a sports game and enjoy some beers and stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. Part of your, I wouldn't say it's part of your DNA either. And I think that that's where it, that's where it gets interesting because I think where masculinity masculinity needs to go 
or where that perception needs to shift to is just it's you being comfortable in your skin. Because I also don't think that masculinity is a toxic term. I do think that there are things like toxic masculinity yeah. and that is where people just say bottle it up and shut it down. But but the whole concept of masculinity is not a bad thing and it's important for us to embrace it. Like we grow up with testosterone in our bodies and there is, and, and our needs, especially because I think it all boils down to your teenage years when it comes to these things is, is your teenage years is when you're most exposed, but also when you, you, we all have so many hormones pumping through our body. And I think it's important for young men to um, be able to understand and comprehend that those things are going on and that our needs are probably a little bit different and, and everything's a scale, but our needs are a bit different to teenage girls and teenage boys and teenage girls go through different stages and, that's that for me is where a lot of masculinity, the shaping of masculinity comes from or boils down to is in that adolescent period where you are so um, you're so able to be influenced by other people. And I definitely had I had role models and I was fortunate to have role models that were probably that old school uh, old school tough, go to work every day, you work you work fucking hard, you clean your hands at the end of the day and you eat dinner. And you have a beer and you go to bed. And then I had others that that influenced me in different ways. But I definitely remember in my teenage years going through a period where I craved that real I'm a I want to be a man. I want to be a really you know, hard-handed bare knuckled dude and and not have to deal with fucking bullshit problems. But then you grow up and you realize that they they just aren't processing them. And that's way less healthy. <laughs> so did you ever feel like there was pressure on you to live up to those like masculine stereotypes? Because not you were saying my, that you, not, not you from, wanted to do those things, but, but you just wanted yeah. them from within yourself or did you feel that you were, that there was a pressure to behave a certain way? Not from my parents, but I definitely think socially or societally there was a pressure. There was a, there, I think we all feel I mean, it's really unique, I think, if you don't feel pressure when you're a teenager to conform on some level with people that you think are cool. You know what I mean? Mm. You, when when you're, a, you're a kid and you see people and you're like, fuck, they're cool. I'm going to do things because I want to be like them. And then it's and then at some point, it's do you actually like doing them or are you doing them because you want to be perceived a certain way? Uh, and that's where you've got to draw the line in the sand around who you become. And I think that's when you find out what masculinity is. That's when you actually lean into just trying to be yourself every day. Mm. And that's all we can really do, but it's really hard to do. And I understand, I, I fully understand people who, uh, who never get to do that or never feel that way. And they feel like they're constantly wearing a mask and that that's exhausting. And that's where you get serious mental health issues. If you had to define your masculinity now, how would you do it? Uh, I would, if I, in a total broad way, I'd just say that I've learned to be comfortable with who I am. There's some things I'm good at. Yeah. There's some things I'm not good at this, you know, the, it, it, even if it comes down to something as phallic as like, you know, accepting the fucking size of your penis, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it is, it's, it's, we, the, you accept your face, accept your body, yeah. accept what your limitations are. That's really what I perceive it as now. And, and I think that it's becoming more about that. Mm. how how do you would you agree with that do you think that that's sort of 
how you would sum it up? I had a conversation with a friend when I was in drama school. So I was probably 19 or something. And I had gone on a date um, and we, I was sitting with a girl um, like outside on the street at this restaurant, like the, it had tables outside. And this uh, like kind of crazy homeless guy came up and he started kind of pestering me and this girl. Mm. And I was like, come on, mate, time for you to like, keep on going, like, get out of here, have a good one. And I was uh, kind of trying to deflect it and stuff. And he was getting more and more agitated. And, uh, and he is like, I think he threatened to stab me. Or so he was like, I'll fucking cut you. Or so like, it really kind of escalated. Was, like, <laughs> was he a cockney gangster? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, fuck. This I'll is shank like, you are, this is in like Redfern in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't remember how, I think I kind of like walked him away or something. And I remember speaking to a friend after who was older, who I, who I had looked up to. Because 19, I wouldn't define myself as a man at that point. But no, I had a, absolutely. a friend who was, kidding. yeah, who was older and who, who I looked up to in terms of his masculinity. And I remember saying to him, I was like, you know, really like through the date, because there was no way that I could, come across as who I wanted to come across because either I was going to be rattled by this like shitty Mm. situation or I would like fire up and like yell at a homeless guy which I didn't want to (laughs) do or it could escalate into me like getting stabbed getting stabbed or being in a fight with a homeless man which I also didn't want or you could go inside and like tell the restaurant manager and then you're kind of like you're like the bitch in the city you're like running away and I remember saying, I was saying to my friend, I was like, you know, how do you even, you know, you want to come across as masculine in that situation? How do you do it? And he was like, you know, the thing that you just got to, got to get comfortable with is you are the rock and not the rock like Dwayne, the rock Johnson. <laughs> You're the, can, can you smell what the rock? Is? So give him an RKO and get out of there. No, it's you are the rock and there are going to be waves and there is going to be wind and it doesn't move you. And that was something that I think uh, I really took on board. And I think about like when I'm in. So what did he mean in that? Did you fight the homeless man? What did he mean in that situation? Well, I think it was just to be, be cool about it and be calm and whichever one of the, whichever option you take, you don't let that option rattle you. Yeah. You just No, that's yeah. You just sit at the table sense. and either you converse with the guy or or you uh speak to the restaurant manager or you call the police or you push him or whatever you decide mm. to do, but you do it with confidence and you take your time and make the decision that that's that fits for you. You are unmoving. It's interesting though because uh, that is also what we would associate. I wonder where the message got mixed up because these, you know, you're Sean Connery, James Bond, or you're Clint Eastwood. Mm. They're never the guys screaming or yelling. You know, they, they do have that cool self. Like, I guess it's just self-assuredness. Yeah. And self-assuredness is what we find sexy regardless of gender, you know, regardless of where you, where you sit on, on a spectrum of sexuality or however you position yourself. self-assuredness is always the best thing I think you can carry with you. Yeah. But I think if you have too much of it and then you become totally closed off and then 
Yeah, so it can become problematic. But that was something that I think I took with me. Story number three. This week in the world of rugby union, the Tri-Nations Cup took place in Sydney. But what made the news wasn't what happened in any of the games. At the start of the game on Saturday, Australia versus Argentina, the national anthem was played. And for the first time ever in an international sporting event in uh, Australia, the anthem was sung partly in English and partly in the Eora language. This is one of the most prominent uh, of the over 250 languages that Indigenous Australians use. It was sung by a woman called Olivia Fox. Uh, She is a Wiradjuri woman. She is 16 and she's from Sydney. She actually goes to Newtown High. The moment has actually caused a huge divide and not where you might expect. As uh, surprisingly, or surprisingly for me, many Indigenous athletes have come out saying that this is not a step in the right direction at all. Latrell Mitchell, who's a rugby league player, wrote on Instagram, when will people understand that changing the language doesn't change the meaning? And Anthony Mundine has added on social media that it was more like rubbing salt in a wound. Nick, are we moving in the right direction or did we just totally fuck up? <laughs> that I was thinking about. Look, I can't speak from a place with enough knowledge of Indigenous culture to know whether that was the right or wrong thing to do. But I definitely thought that when it first when when, when it first hit the news, I didn't actually watch that game because I'm fucking done with the Wallabies more so than anything. They've broken my heart too Argentina. many times. This We're not year. good at the moment. Twice, second time they've tied with Argentina twice in the past three weeks. Um, but I was, because I guess that's the hard thing because I don't know 100% and I'm even less familiar with Maori culture. But my understanding is that that um, over in New Zealand, because obviously they already have a, a verse in Maori in uh, their national anthem, my understanding is that there is only, uh, there's less languages. Whereas Austra- the thing with Australia was there was several nomadic tribes of Aboriginal people. I think there was, what, up to 6,000 or something like Thousands. that living across yeah, Australia? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and they believe at least 250 languages. Yeah. Um, so, well, they've only recently reclaimed, uh, around the Bundaberg region, they've only recently reclaimed the, the na- uh, language native to that area which was an amazing feat in itself. But I was, I was wondering, is this more showmanship than actual meaningful change? When it comes to changing the anthem, look, I don't give a shit. I think if we're going to make people feel more included, the anthem isn't some sacred thing that we've been singing for 200 years. It's only been around for 50 or 60 years and they've already changed the lyrics once because it used to said, uh, say Australian sons, let us rejoice. And we decided maybe the women should get a say as well. So maybe the people that, uh, our First Nations people should have a say in, mm. in the decisions we make. But it's important that when we do that, it's an all-encompassing decision that still reflects the values we want known as being Australian, which I think is about honesty, about integrity, about hard work. Uh, so it's 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 really hard. I'd be so curious to know where you stand on this and I'd love to pick your brain about it because I'm sure you know a bit more about this than me. So uh, the first thing that I'll put out is um, I actually wrote to a friend of mine. His name is Maine Wyatt, um, and he's an Indigenous actor. And you might have seen him. He's he's uh, been on things like The Project and on Q&A, um, and mm. he's very knowledgeable and very vocal about uh, 
about these types of things. And I really wanted to have an Indigenous perspective within this conversation uh, from Absolutely. a personal angle. Um, and unfortunately, he didn't get back to me. So we don't... Uh. We don't have that, which uh, I mean, like <laughs> we always put it out there that everything yeah. that we say you take with a grain of salt because there's two white guys um, kind of kicking ideas Rattling around. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really torn about this at first because I have uh, my, you know, my aeroplane theory, which I've used before mm. in the podcast. And, and that theory is... Um, if a plane is flying from Sydney to Los Angeles and you draw a straight line between those two points, how much of the time is the plane actually flying on the straight line? Tiny. It's like 5% of the time. 97% of the time, it's actually going off in the wrong direction and recalculating and recalibrating. And that's a perspective that I have with a lot of things in the world because I think very often there is progress being made and people are very, very quick to tear that progress down because it's imperfect. So at, f- at first when I saw this, that was kind of my initial thought was, well, are we at least making progress even if it's imperfect? And then I started to look into um, the things that Latrell Mitchell and Anthony Mundine were saying very vocally um, mm. was basically saying that the plane isn't just off the line, the plane is actually flying in the wrong direction. Because what mm. we're doing is a tokenistic act and covering up. And I mean, the Australian anthem has been seen as something that represents, uh, I, I mean, racism in this country and and the the partial genocide of the Indigenous people. So, yeah, I don't know where that's come from. That's that to me seems a really foreign because at what point is it is not everything that if that makes sense. Like if you want to if you want to relate that, mm. unfortunately, I think that ship has that ship has sailed a little bit because there are there's no lines in the song other than um, the the line about being a young nation that that actually represent genocide or anything along those lines. No, and the song didn't happen in that time either. That's, no, that's but I think I think the conscious choice to never include any reference to Indigenous people or any lines, like the constant pushback to have an Indigenous reference, kind of upholds the song as something that is in opposition to um, the acknowledgement of the Indigenous people. Would you would, would you agree with that? No, I, I can understand that perspective, but I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think that that is the case. And I think there's, you know, I think as as long as you are trying to move in the right direction or fly in the right direction, mm. I don't necessarily think what the Wallabies did was correct either. It, although it's hard. Like the Wallabies, I would say this as well, though. The Wallabies and Rugby Australia, uh, I my perception of them at the moment is that they would be very open to a little bit of performative activism because they they just want people to fucking watch them play because they're barely getting TV. Like there's there's other things that are happening behind it. Like how much of Gladys Berejiklian um, pushing forward the change in the lyrics to the anthem was based around the fact she was being investigated for fraud and for embezzling money from the right. you know, at the same time. How much of this is actually about... Uh, progress and and how much is like you said how much is it coming down to them just doing tokenistic stuff to try to appear like the good people because the wallabies are definitely capable of that 
I mean, that this is the same. It, there's no surprise that this is the same code that went through the whole Israel Folau drama, whether that was right or wrong or however you want to uh, view that. I'm not talking about that situation, but I'm just saying the Wallabies have a track record of trying to push progressive viewpoints at all times to maybe try to get a bit more viewership. So I think that that needs to be put into put into this as well, if that makes sense. We, need, does it to, matter? we need to understand. Does it, does it matter if, if they're doing something to increase their viewership? Because at the end of the day, Rugby Australia or Rugby Union Australia is a business. Um, and so if they're saying, okay, we're going to be socially progressive uh, so that people feel comfortable watching us, does it matter? If they get the if they get the same result, it doesn't matter to me. But I think that it does matter because then it's very easy to point out how hypocritical that that statement is. How hypocritical for them to make that statement when you consider rugby in Australia? It is essentially a private school led elite boys club. I, I mean, the percentage of players that come from GPS schools that then turn professional is ridiculous. So top top schools, elite schools, feed about 90% of all professional rugby union players in this country. So the, it, it matters from the perspective of, are you doing this because you are a great all-encompassing sport or are you doing this because you are intentionally trying to get headlines? And I do think that there needs to be integrity behind what we do. And that shows a lack of integrity. It, it, it absolutely does. So yeah, I do think it matters. It matters that we, we are... Uh, show integrity and honesty in what we do. And if they're, they're not necessarily doing it for the right reasons, then that isn't great. As I said, I'm totally open to changing things. I'm, I'm 100% open to that, but I want to make sure it's been a well-researched, well-documented process to actually get there. Uh, Brett wrote on our Facebook page, I'm not Aboriginal, so I feel my opinion doesn't carry much weight. But since you asked, I think this was a bullshit token gesture for a song that raises negative emotions in the culture it was translated to. So I don't think you're alone, Nick, in thinking that it was a tokenistic gesture. What about the what about the um, indigenous athletes um, or indigenous Australians in general who liked that it happened? Because there is, well, that's good. And this I, is, a, and I'm saying, don't, don't not take joy from it. Mm. If you did love it and it meant something to you, and you were an indigenous person and you were touched by this, or a First Nations person, then that's that's a fantastic thing. And I think that it's always great to make people feel more accepted, whoever you are. And obviously, that hasn't been the case for a very bloody long time when it comes to our First Nations people. It's been fuck up after fuck up after fuck up, and that's that that in itself doesn't do justice. That language in itself doesn't do justice. But I do think that I would like all of us to tie together. I don't, I don't want more divisive things. And that seems to be what performative activism creates mm. is just more division and more division from every single camp. And I don't think we need to tear people apart more we need to now realize how social media and technology can be used to bring people together. I think and- uh, I, I was thinking about my, my aeroplane analogy and mm. I think the next step of whether or not we are flying in the right direction, but slightly off course or whether we are flying in the wrong direction altogether is what happens next. 
And I don't yeah. think it's something that we can actually put our finger on right now because we don't know. If it is something that was completely tokenistic and it was something that was in the wrong direction, then this is the end of the story. And this is yeah. the last that we'll ever hear of it. And it will just be swept under the rug and that's the end. But the point of the metaphor about continuing to move and continuing to alter in the right direction, getting closer and closer, is that there are continuous steps to be taken. And so if we are traveling in the right direction, uh, in order for that to be the case, there needs to be a next step. And uh, Rugby Australia and Australia as a whole needs to continue having this conversation. And I think this is this could potentially be just the, the start of it. Um, I do think that we should update our, I think that we should update the national anthem. Like you were saying, I actually pulled up some of the, st- the stats. It only officially became the national anthem in 1984 um, after a plebiscite on it in 1977. So, I mean, this song is not something that uh, is steeped in history. And I think that we should keep on having the conversation. And if they could have a plebiscite about it then, then we should have another plebiscite now. And they they should add a line or change, uh, maybe add a verse or something, and it should be made to be inclusive. That's what I would love to see. Yeah, and I agree with that completely. I think that we we get too steep down and don't look enough. And and you make a good point because as soon as the plane turns, none of us have these conversations without shit actually happening. Without we don't know people get upset until it's happened. Mm. You know what I mean? You can't preemptively be pissed off about things. Although social media really tries to help you. <laughs> and so it's it it takes actions like this for us to have these conversations. So you know, if that's the case, then then it probably was worth it. Yeah, good on them. I would agree. Yeah, if we move in the right direction. Nick picks. Do you have any recommendations for us this week, other than <laughs> go and find a mate and dig two hundred and fifty trenches on a farm in your been- Beasley shirt? <sighs> I have been hard out, man. I do. I have. This is what I have done. I, my Nick pick is Furphy, the beer. That's because that's <laughs> what I've been consuming. Uh, I've been working from 4.30 a.m. until 5 o'clock at night. And then I drink about five beers and go to sleep because I am busted, mate. So I would love to hear yours. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I have a Nick pick. I finished reading. Well, I say reading, but listening because I listen to audiobooks all the time. Um, I hmm. finished listening to The Barefoot Investor and I know that it sounds like such a basic... Uh, no, it, well, it's good. Some things are good because they're good. Scott Pape's a smart man. I've I had the pleasure of chatting to him quite a few times. Have you really? He's yeah, he's uh, he's a Bendigo guy as well, isn't he, from around that area? Well, he lives, yeah, he speaks a lot about living in regional Victoria just outside of Melbourne. Mm. So my guess is he lives around Kyneton or something, but uh, yeah, close to Bendigo. Um, mm. I finished the audio book. Um, and for somebody like me, uh, there, there are probably two camps of people right now. There's probably some people going, oh my God, like 101 what to do with your money, how basic can you possibly be? But if you're somebody like me who hasn't been financially minded, I mean, I kind of... It's okay, mate. You said you did drama earlier. Yeah, exactly. I didn't do a finance degree like you, Nick. Um, no, it's been, it's been really wonderful. And I think, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your money and your super and stuff like that. These are, these are things that are going to affect you so hugely, uh, later in life. And, um, it's, I, I feel really good to have 
put a little bit of time mm. and energy into getting my head further around it. So I feel quite passionate about it. I enjoy. Are you uh, are you going to sign up to a new bank? I've I've uh, signed up to one new account. I'm going to do not his full thing because his full mm. thing doesn't 100 percent work for me. I think with anything, you've got to kind of pick and choose and see what applies to your lifestyle. So yep. I'm going to do like a modified version of it. Uh, yeah, so I've got a, a little card in the mail. I'm going to set it up. <laughs> but I'm going to do the 2021 version because I'm not going to carry it around. I'm going to scan it and put it on my Apple Watch so that I can just oh, ping it onto nice. things. Oh, yeah. nice. Man, there is a... no. Okay, no word of a lie. Out here on the property at the moment, there's a 20-ton digger and it's brand new and it now is thumb-scanned. So oh, that only great. the driver can operate it. He has to thumbprint in. It's all lasered in there. It's man, the future's wild. We can pay for things on our watch and open diggers with our thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, we have a Facebook group. It's called Off Air Podcast Community. We would love to see you in there. Nick, can you post a photo of you in your Cobra hat out on your thumbprint scanning um, tractor? <laughs> I'll. Uh, well, they don't let me. They don't let me anywhere fucking near it, mate. But I'll, I'll try to get one with it in the background. All right. Uh, catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Off Air. Remember to like and subscribe. People are entitled to their sexual proclivities. <laughs> <laughs>